0: Amen. Thank you for leading us so well this morning, Paul. And thank you for leading us in intercessions, uh, Pastor Pip. I really appreciate that very much indeed. Good morning. If you're a guest here this morning, my name is Malcolm Duncan. I have the privilege of leading the church here in Dundonald. And if you're joining us online, thanks so much for taking the time to do that too. I pray God would speak to you powerfully through his word. If you have a Bible, would you please turn in it to the last chapter of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. My uh I read the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Some of you have been asking which version I read. Um the NRSV. We're in the middle of a series on what it means to be kingdom people. And over the last few weeks we have explored a number of things our great principle is that we put God's kingdom and reign and rule first. And we explored Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, for that. "Seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. Then the following week, on the 20th of May, we explored what our great passion was, that we live out of love. And we explored the great commandment of Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind your soul and strength, and love your neighbor as you do yourself. And last week we began exploring the great commission of Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 to 20 by exploring our great priority that we worship honestly. We're told in verse 16 of chapter 28 of Matthew that they worship Jesus, but some doubted. And we encourage you to bring your honest life to God. Not the one you think he likes, but the one that is your life. And this morning, we want to continue that by exploring the theme of our great pursuit. And we're going to return again to the Great Commission. We're going to be looking at it for uh, the next two or three weeks together as we explore what it means to follow faithfully. So let's read from verse 11 of Matthew chapter 28. Jesus has been resurrected, and he's told his disciples to not be afraid and to go and to tell others in Galilee that they will see him and that he has risen. Verse 11, while they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you must say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. In other words, they bribed the soldiers to lie about why Jesus' body wasn't there. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. There is no greater adventure than the adventure of seeking to live your life with God, the creator of the universe at the center of it. Nothing is more exciting. Nothing is more thrilling. Nothing is more life-giving and nothing is more difficult. It will give you opportunities to see and do things that you never thought possible. It will take you to new places. It will expose the deepest and the darkest sins and fault lines in your heart. It will challenge your self-reliance. It will demand the best of you. It will pull out the best of you and it will confront you with your worst. And it will never end this journey, but it is worth it to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To live with God at the center of your life is to live according to the manufacturer's instructions. It's to live well, it's to live purposefully, it's to live intentionally, and it's to live freely. And I know that in our culture today, here in Northern Ireland and in the United Kingdom and in Europe, Lots of things promise you freedom. They're lying. Money will promise you freedom. Position will promise you freedom. Sexual liberation promises you freedom. Living as you see fit all promise you freedom. Career, a bigger house, a bigger car. They all say, have this and you'll have life. But in the end, they take life from you. The only thing that brings real life that lasts and will never fade away in human existence is living with the creator of the universe at the very center of our lives. And I want to encourage you to continue that great pursuit of following Jesus. I wanna ask you a question. Those of you that have been Christians for a long time, when was the last time you discovered something about God for the first time? When was the last time he took your breath away When was the last time that you came to a communion table and your heart was so softened because he'd revealed something more of his character to you that you thought, I don't know what to say? Often in churches and in Christian culture, those of us that have been Christians 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 45, 55, 60 years, Assume that the only people that have to learn how to grow in Christian faith is those that have been converted in the last few months. That's a lie. When was the last time you memorized a verse? When was the last time you were brought to your knees either physically or metaphorically in worship? When was the last time That you read the Bible and said, I can't express my gratitude for the grace of God in my life. The pursuit never ends, the following never stops, and you can tell the people that it has stopped in. They're the ones that are always telling you how to live, they're the ones that are always pointing out your faults. Do you know the type of person I mean? You have a conversation with them and you come eager to share something that you've discovered from God's word and you say something like, I don't know, um, Jesus in uh, speaking to Mary and Martha in Luke's gospel when uh, Martha's running around like a headless chicken and Mary sitting at his feet and you discover for the first time that where, G, where uh, Mary was sitting was the place that a, a student would sit with their rabbi you realize that Jesus is breaking social and gender barriers by saying, this woman has a right to sit at my feet like any man. That's where the teachers sat. And you go to somebody and say, I've discovered this amazing thing. And they say, oh, I knew that. Or they'll tell you something else. They always have to have something else to add to the thing that you've discovered. Years ago, I was taught Greek by a man who died this year. His name was Dr. Siegfried Schatzmann. He helped translate the NIV. So he was quite good at Greek. And he handed us, I was put into this little tiny class, an accelerated class, and he handed us a Greek New Testament and said, this is your textbook. And every week you're going to do a little bit of it. And you're going to explain it, and I'm going to teach you Greek that way. And we each had to explain a little bit of the verse. The technical phrase is exegete and I had to explain John chapter one, verse five. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. And I have that uh, verse, it changed my life. I have that verse on a, on a picture in my wall, in my study at home. I have it written in a crystal candle. I've had people do paintings of it. I'll explain it to you in the years that lie ahead. I can't get to the bottom of this one verse. 27 years I've been studying that verse and I don't understand it. And I had to exegete, explain this in front of this class with the man that helped translate the NIV. So I did my best, and it was a terrible job. It was hopeless. And he came to me at the end, and he said, Malcolm, I learned something new today. I thought, I want to be like that. I want to keep pursuing. I want to be the person that doesn't always have to have the last word. I always want to see that there is more of God in front of me to discover. Does that make sense? And if we could adopt that culture as a church that all of us are growing, all of us have something more to learn, all of us have an opportunity to discover something new about God, my goodness, it would have a huge impact on how we behave. You see... At the end of the day, if you go back to 28 verse 18, and that's where I want to focus my thoughts and reflections today, there are just three simple things that I want to suggest to you. Number one, we follow Jesus. Number two, we listen to his word and we obey it. And number three, we can trust him. In this pursuit of being followers of Jesus or followers of God, it is Jesus himself that we follow. Listen to the beginning of verse 18. And Jesus came... It is Jesus that shows us what God is like. It is Jesus that explains to us God's character. If you want to know, brother, sister, friend, if you're watching online or here and you're not yet a Christian, what God is like, if you want to know what the creator of the universe is like, you don't need to look any further than Jesus Christ. The Bible says this, Paul wrote to a church called Colossae, and he said, he is the visible expression of the invisible God in Colossians chapter one. And in him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. Wow. Does that not excite you? You all look as if you're bored by that reality. The creator of the universe is seen in Jesus Christ. We are not left guessing what God is like. We don't have to rummage about in the dark. We don't have to make it up ourselves. God has shown us his character, shown us his heart, shown us his priorities, shown us his commitment, shown us his mercy in Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. That means that I am a follower of Jesus. The word literally means little Christ. I follow him. This is a Christian church. We're not a theistic church. We're not a deist church. We are a Christian church. God sits at the center of our community in the person of Jesus Christ. So if we are following anyone to be like God, we follow him. We don't follow cultural trends. We follow him. We follow his mercy. We follow his example. We follow his words. We follow his actions. We follow his priorities. To follow Jesus is to be rooted in grace. It is to be reliant on revelation. And it is to live lives of response. Jesus came to them. Who took the first move in this discourse? Who initiated the dialogue? Who stepped forward first? It was Jesus. Paul picked it up in Romans chapter 5. When he said, whilst we were still sinners, he died for us. John, as an old man writing to the church in Ephesus, said this. We love him because he first loved us. We respond to God. We never take the initiative. We never come to God and say, I've had a great idea. And the Lord replies, I hadn't thought of that. Never. We always respond. We follow Jesus. Listen to the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. demands courage. It demands determination. It demands conviction. Contrary to what lots of people might tell you, because it sounds good as a sound bite, following Christ is hard. It means that we have to let our priorities be reordered, our, our, our lives be reconfigured. I pray we never are individuals or a church that says, Lord, bless what we are doing but instead that our lives are predicated or built upon this foundation, help us to do what you are blessing. Help us to be the people that you want us to be. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come to me all you that are weary and are heavy, carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest, assumes that in following him we will grow weary and that sometimes we will be discouraged and sometimes we will be disheartened along the way. And that he is there to encourage us and pick us up. One of my pet hates is congregations and churches that chastise people every time they come to church. For some of you, it is a miracle that you're still going. You haven't given up on God yet. I pray that he will lift your heart today, that he will encourage you and strengthen you and give you great hope. Jesus didn't have any kind of romantic notion about the cost of discipleship. He knew that following him was an uns, as unsentimental as duty and as demanding as love. We make a choice. I will build my life upon him. Whether I feel like it or not, whether things are going well or not, whether I'm walking through a valley of sorrow or not, I will build my life on him. Not in the spectacular, not in the neon lights of platform ministry and possibilities, but in ordinary, everyday choices. How I'm a dad. How I'm a husband. How I'm a brother. How I am a neighbor. How I am a friend. How I am a colleague. And the stuff that none of you probably see very often. I must make choices about who I am and what I do with my faith in Jesus Christ. So must you, at work, at school, at university, the way you treat your employees or your employer, the way you deal with your neighbors, the way you deal with conflict, the way you deal with your family. That's where discipleship is worked out. That's where we see what real faith looks like, not in the stellar moments, but in sitting by a husband in a hospital, holding on to someone as they're passing away, making a choice that we will live for Christ because we follow him. Listen to Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 12, from a paraphrase called The Message. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. For about 18 months now, I've been writing a little thing called Night Blessings. I've mentioned them to you before. There are several hundred thousand people a night read them. I put them on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And every week I am getting emails from dozens and dozens, sometimes hundreds of people, whose lives are being transformed, many of whom have come to faith in Jesus Christ through these ordinary little night blessings. This week I heard from a man who's watching online now. His name is Gary. He lives in England and he has a very, very severe form of cancer. And in the midst of his daily living, he's simply trying to live for Jesus faithfully. Many other people may not notice it, but he's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to live well. He's not going to put his name in lights above the United Kingdom. He's simply trying to live well. Some of you are facing things this week that are terrible, court Um, Appointments, doctor's appointments, marriage problems, things that nobody else knows about. Live well in those moments. Let God be the person that you follow in those decisions. Let Him give you grace and strength in each of your moments of life because, brothers and sisters, this is a lifelong journey. I did not surrender. I did not surrender my whole life in a single second. I've come to realize that in the moment that I was converted, that's what I wanted to do. But ever since my conversion 32 years ago, I have repeatedly taken back control. Please don't tell me I'm the only one. We may have made a decision in a moment, but it is a lifetime's commitment. That which is lifelong, write this down if you're taking notes, that which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. It's not how you started this race that matters. It's how you finish it. That which takes a lifelong commitment takes a lifetime to work out. Surrender to the will of God is about the maturity of day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year, surrendering to God's will. I want to read you something from a a writer called Michael Spencer, who's written a book called Mere Christianity, Finding Your Way Back to Jesus-Shaped Spirituality. This is very, very encouraging and challenging to me. Jesus-Shaped Spirituality. Has Jesus say, believe and repent? But the call that resonates most deeply in the heart of a disciple is follow me. The command to follow requires that we take a daily journey in the company of Jesus and in the company of others who know him. It demands that we be lifelong learners and that we commit to constant growth in spiritual maturity. Discipleship is a call to me, but it is a journey of we. I need you. Now, you may not like that idea, but I need you, and you need me sometimes to say, most often to say good things to one another. Sometimes to say hard things. Sometimes to hold your hand and look you in the eye and say, I'm not sure that's what Jesus wants you to do. We need each other. This is a lifelong call to following Him, to being what He wants us to be. Over the next few weeks, we're going to explore the rest of the Great Commission, and we will discover that we are told we are to go that we are to make disciples, that we are to baptize, and that we are to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded them. To go is about intentionality. To make disciples is about purpose. To baptize is about identification. To teach is about instruction. And to command is about obedience. But don't worry if you didn't get that down because we're going to look at it again. Over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack those five things. What does it mean to be intentional? What does it mean to be purposeful about making disciples? How do we identify with Jesus Christ? How do we instruct one another? And how do we learn to obey? But all of that starts in us. When we make a decision that we will be followers of Jesus, when we respond to God's invitation and we become followers, and that's my second point, we listen to his word and we obey it. And Jesus came and said to them. It's his word that guides us. It's his word that we need to hear. And I want you to look at me for a moment because there's a huge mistake that we often make as Christians here. Who is Jesus talking to here? In fact, who is almost all of Jesus' ministry directed at? His followers. And he said to them, Why do we constantly tell others outside of Christian faith how to live? Wouldn't we do better do better, to first live it ourselves? I'm going to say something to you which is deeply uncomfortable for many Christians. If we want to know why society has ended up the way it has we need to first ask why we have allowed that to happen. Jesus' word is to his followers. That's me. I have a responsibility to listen to him and to obey his word. Yesterday in Birmingham, I spoke at a convention, at a meeting, a national day of prayer organized by something called the World Prayer Center. You can find it on their Facebook page. The video is there. I was really nervous about it. There were several thousand people present. And basically, I I preached on the book of Jeremiah and Jeremiah as a prophet. And here is what I said. The great challenge that the church in the United Kingdom is facing. And for those watching uh, online and here in this room, I believe God is saying this to the church. Is that we must be honest about where we are spiritually. We've got to be honest about the spiritual temperature of our nation, of our country, of our island, Northern Ireland and the Republic of the United Kingdom. And there are far too many Christians that all they ever say is God is on the move, God is on the move, God is on the move. Because our church is doing well. The reality is church attendance is plummeting across the United Kingdom and in the Republic of Ireland. Churches are closing left, right and center. They're being turned into mosques and carpet stores and all kinds of things. And you might say, well, that's not my church. It is your church. Because we are part of the body of Jesus. And we are facing deep and difficult days. Is God moving? Yes. But don't assume that that means everything is fine. These two things happen at the same time. In Joel chapter 2, Joel prophesied this about the last days. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said this, in the last days, the love of many will wax cold. Those two things happen at the same time. Which camp are you in? It's possible to be present in a church which is alive and to be dying spiritually. And it's possible to be in a church that is dying spiritually and be alive. We've got to be honest about where we are. And the church has to respond to what Jesus Christ is saying. They listen to his word. Jesus said to them, what is Jesus saying to you? How is he directing your life and the choices that you have to make this week? And how you spend your money and what you do with your time and your priorities. What is Jesus saying to you? And are you listening? He wants to direct us into life. He wants to direct us into hope. He wants to direct us into courage. He wants to direct us into fruitfulness. We must be careful that we listen to his word and we obey it. And the last point, I told you there were only three things I wanted to say, is that we can trust him. Listen to the second half of the verse. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Remember when this is happening in this account in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is now the resurrected Jesus. He's the risen, death-conquering, sin-destroying Jesus. And we are confronted with this resurrected Jesus talking to his disciples. And he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's entrusted to him. Let's break down those words for a moment. Is there a bit of the world where God's authority is not present? No. In the words of the Dutch Reformed Prime Minister Abraham Kuyper over a hundred years ago, there is not one square inch of this planet over which God has not already proclaimed in a loud voice, mine. Now, some of us that were brought up with a, a spirituality that might need some alteration, we're told when you go to there, God doesn't go with you. If you do this, God isn't there. If you're in this place, God isn't there. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's a theology of fear. And it's a theology that contradicts the teaching of Jesus himself. He tells us he'll never leave us. And if you think that's good, that means that he doesn't care what I do. That's entirely not the right way around. He watches as we turn our back on him. He watches our decisions. He's present in our actions. He never leaves us. We'll explore that in a few weeks. All authority is given to him. Every ounce of it. He has absolute and complete authority over where? Over earth and over heaven. That's what this verse says. Who ultimately is most powerful in Northern Ireland? Stormont? Well, if they met. RMPs? No. God, the sovereign lord sits and sees every single decision made in this province. He is still the all-powerful one. He is still able to see. He sees the moves around how we are going to treat the unborn. He sees and hears the dialogues that you and I don't see and hear, spoken in secret rooms in Westminster. He knows the deals that are going on in Theresa May's cabinet today in Checkers as they fight it out again. He is present today as Donald Trump makes his way to Singapore in order to meet with Kim Jong-un this week. He'll be present in the room. He is the all-powerful one. Who is the he in that? Is it some kind of metaphysical idea or cloud? No, it is Jesus Christ, the risen and exalted God to whom all authority on earth and heaven has been given. And he calls us his friends How does that work? I come from Rathcule. I'm a council estate boy. Why would the creator of the universe want a relationship with me? And yet he does. Why would he want a relationship with you? And yet he does. We can trust him. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. It's a subjugated authority. Now, I need to do a bit of theology in about two minutes with you. I want you to turn in your Bibles if you have them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for a second. 1 Corinthians 15, that's the New Testament. Genesis, no, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians 15. It's a chapter about resurrection and hope. And I'm going to read just two verses, verses 27 and 28 to you. Well, let's read from verse 25, because it's amazing. Everybody got it? He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is Jesus Christ. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's Jesus' feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. That's God the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. That's complicated, isn't it? Here's what it's saying. Jesus Christ is part of the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit exist co-eternally and in the same substance. They are the same in character and in substance and in reality. And they always have been and they always will be. How does that work, Malcolm? How can one person have three different identities? I am a father, I am a son, and I am a husband. But I am me and I relate in different ways to each of those different sets of relationships. Think of water for a moment. Water exists um, when it's heated as steam, when it's not heated as water, and when it's frozen as ice, but it never changes its chemical makeup. Think of the sun, you can look into the sky. These are not my analogies They're from the ancient church fathers almost 2000 years ago. You look up into the sun, you can see it there, you can feel its rays, and you can um, experience its light. It has different functionalities, but it is the same thing. Christians believe in a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. But we believe this about Jesus Christ, that he has been given authority by the Father to rule on heaven and earth. And when he completes all that he is doing on earth, he will give that authority back to the Father and will eternally use it. And that subjection will never change. Why does that matter? Why bring that up at this point? Why not just leave it because it's too complicated? Because this eternal reality shows us how our own relationships work. Learning to trust one another, learning to honor one another, learning to put one another first, learning that our standing before God has never changed, whether we are um, the head of a church or the newest Christian. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are in absolutely the same standing with him as I am and anybody else that has ever been in the church. We often quote people like Spurgeon or Tom Torrance or John Calvin or Martin Luther or Philip Melanchthon or Zwingli or Elizabeth Elliot or a hundred other people, Jackie Pullinger. None of them are loved by God more than he loves you if you're a Christian. What an amazing thing. I don't need to pass an exam to be loved by him. I don't need to set a test to be loved by him. I don't need to learn a set of words to be loved by him. When I have knelt before his son, Jesus, who has all authority... And I trust him. I am loved by him. And he will never, ever, ever stop loving me. What did it cost? 1 Corinthians 15, 5, 20, it tells us the end of all of this. That in the end, God may be all in all. Wow. That doesn't mean everything's God. It means that God is in complete and absolute control and you see the evidence of it because there will come a day when there will be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more suffering and no more loss and no more pain and no more sin. And we're part of the great band of people that will enjoy that reality. Can anybody say hallelujah to that? But what did this cost? It cost the Son subjecting Himself to the Father's wrath. But that's not the end of the story. For 2,000 years, Christians have remembered the death of Jesus Christ by eating bread and drinking wine. We do the same by eating bread. And drinking grape juice. This red juice speaks of his blood. This bread speaks of his body. That's what it costs for you to be brought into a relationship with Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. Listen to the words carefully. Jesus being In very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be demanded or held on to. But instead, he humbled himself. He subjected himself to death, even death on a cross. Now listen to the second half. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The Jesus that we will remember as we take wine and bread sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He's not just like us. In every way, as a human, he is just like us. But he is perfect and holy and powerful. And if you're a Christian, he's on your side. And if you're not, then the person who has authority over the entire universe is opposed to you. And you will be subject to his wrath. Because Jesus has the authority to heal, the authority to forgive, the authority to release, the authority to bring life. But he also has the authority to judge. And at this table, I want to ask you something. What side of that argument do you land in? Are you his disciple? Or are you a detractor? our great pursuit, our greatest privilege is to be followers of Jesus Christ. And the greatest decision that you can make is to become such a follower. And if you are that follower today, press into him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. I am going to ask a couple of very simple questions. And the first one demands courage, bravery, confidence. Not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ. I know that God is inviting all watching online or here in this room to come to know him. Nobody is uninvited to this table Will you accept the invitation? In order to accept the invitation, you acknowledge your need of a savior. You confess that Jesus Christ has died for you and that you want his eternal life and you turn from your own way and you ask for his mercy. To become a Christian is to become a follower of the resurrected Jesus who died on a cross for you. And my simple question is, if you're online and you want to do that, in a moment I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you just to send a little email to my colleague, pip at dundonaldelam.church, and he will help you. He's one of the pastors here alongside Pastor Davy and myself. And Here in this room, I'm going to pray a simple prayer, and I want you to pray it with me if you want to step into this family. Father, I come to you through your son Jesus Christ and I acknowledge that I need his forgiveness and his mercy. I'm sorry for all of the things that I have done that have separated from me from you and I ask you to give me new life. Take away the old life. Take away everything that has held me back from you and help me to follow you for the rest of my life. Let me be part of your family. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you that your son rose again for me. Help me to live for you this day and every day in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, if you have prayed that prayer, normally I will ask people to put a hand up or to nod or to do something. But for some reason, and I don't know if anybody has prayed it here today, I'm trusting that you might have. If you've decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ today, I want to invite you to stand just for a moment where you are so I can see you and I can pray for you. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter how often you've been coming to church. If you're settling this today, then before Almighty God, just stand up. I'll give you a few moments. My second question is for all of us. Will you commit again to continuing to follow Jesus? Not because there's anything wrong, but because you want to press into him. Lord, pray this prayer with me. Lord, we come to you again. And we ask you to give us the grace to respond to your invitation, to learn something new about you, and to keep going, to keep following. Give us a new revelation of your grace. Give us a fresh joy in our salvation. Lift our eyes to heaven. And let us see your greatness and your glory again. Help us to continually follow you. To continually grow. And to be changed by your mercy and by your grace. Amen.